Hello, and welcome to Walking with the Tengu, a podcast where we explore classic texts for the modern martial artist. Today, we're going to jump into the topic of the Icelandic sagas, a set of works I've had on my mind since the very beginning of this podcast. Some are around a thousand years ago, and roughly around the time of Chaucer and Dante, a bunch of Scandinavians decided not to write poetry, as was the norm in Europe at the time, but to write prose about the doings of ordinary people. We look back on them through the lens of having been brought up on the idea of the modern literary work known as the novel, though this form of writing really only became widespread in the 18th century. I've heard the theory that if the sagas had been available to the rest of Europe at the time of their composition, they would seem more strange to the people of that time period than to ours. The rest of medieval literature was mostly written by and for aristocrats, whereas Icelanders wrote for themselves. While to our eyes inequality still existed in Icelandic culture, there was a greater freedom and equality in their society than in the rest of Europe and most of the world at that time. This collection of remote and isolated farmers lived with a kind of proto-legislative and judicial system more familiar to us than to the feudal peoples who had lived and served under nobles, aristocrats, and monarchies. Legal standards were codified, arguments were made, rights were fought for, and a kind of justice was often sought. Like our own legal systems today, we may not always find justice, and there are certainly areas for improvement. Humans, in the end, are greedy and selfish, and any legal system can be manipulated. Yet, the community of the Icelanders of a thousand years ago, while in some ways very different, were also in other ways more similar to our own than much of the rest of the world at that time. Since I've built most of this podcast so far on works from China and Japan, let me situate it historically in context for us along those timelines. The 9th, 10th, and 11th centuries AD in Japan were pretty much smack in the middle of the Heian period, a time where the imperial family still appeared to have power, though the real hands at the reins came from the Hujiwara clan. It is noteworthy that it was during this time period that the warrior class began to organize into what we know today as the samurai. Meanwhile, in China, this period can be mapped to the northern Song dynasty, Established by a professional soldier in charge of palace troops from the preceding later Zhou dynasty, who then led a mutiny and, surprise, surprise, ended up with the so-called Mandate of Heaven. The later Song was marked by a centralized authoritarian government. Their motto was Strong Trunk, Weak Branches, which increased emphasis on scholarly work and reduced the military. While there was an increase in stability, in the face of mediocre rulers as a result, this period was also marked by repeated military defeats culminating in the invasion of the capital and capture of the royal family by Jin invaders from the north. So, all the way on the other side of the world, a Norwegian, first known as Harald Tanglehair, and eventually Harald Fairhair, was also successful at conquering and uniting most of what we know today as Norway. As with most historical accounts, we must always be on guard against bias and perspective manipulation. 
Harald is known as the first king of Norway, and his portrayal in the sagas is mixed, most often, at least to my reading, as an antagonist, whose subjugation of Norway to a system of monarchy was the primary driving force for freedom-loving people to emigrate to Iceland. The truth of the matter may be more complex than that, though there certainly may be a lot of truth already mixed in. It's hard to say. Harald Fairhair could just be a convenient reason to explain why people left for Iceland. It could also reflect the time period of the 1300s, when the sagas were being written down for the first time, and Iceland, coincidentally, was coming into a period of increasing Norwegian domination. Or it was a mixture of all of these. Regardless, Harald and his subjugation and unification of Norway comes up a lot in the sagas. Ironically, like so many other old stories, the road to conquest started perhaps as a love story. It is said that it began with a marriage proposal that resulted in rejection and scorn from Gida, the daughter of Eric, king of Hordaland. She refused to marry Harald, saying that she would not do so before he was king over all of Norway. Harald then took a vow not to cut or comb his hair until he was Theodekonunger, people king of Norway. So, naturally, after conquering all of Norway ten years later, he cut his hair and was known as Fairhair instead. One has to wonder if Gita was just trying to get rid of an annoying suitor, maybe, and ended up changing Norway's history and political system. Perhaps the lesson there is, ladies, don't leave an opening for a man you are rejecting. Be direct when you reject him. It's better for everyone. If you say, not until you're king over Norway, he'll understand that as, well, then there's a chance. Though in Gita's case, perhaps she meant it and wanted Harold to get off his lazy rear end and do something with his life. Apparently, they ended up having five children together. So, a bunch of people left Norway for Iceland. And these are their stories, often spanning generations, about how they ended up going there, what they did when they got there, and what they've been up to after they had been there for a while. There are several different kinds of sagas. One genre is known as family sagas, which are prose narratives mostly based on historical events that mostly took place in Iceland in the 9th, 10th, and early 11th centuries during the so-called Saga Age. They were written in Old Icelandic, a western dialect of Old Norse. They are mostly focused on history, especially genealogical and family history. They tell of the challenges and conflicts that arose with the early generations of Icelandic settlers. Eventually, many of these Icelandic sagas were recorded, mostly in the 13th and 14th centuries. The authors, or rather recorders, of these sagas are largely unknown. One saga, Egil's saga, is believed to, by some scholars to have been written by Snorri Sturluson, a descendant of the saga's hero, but this remains uncertain. There are a few things for us to look for in these works. While it's true there are at times representations of what could be considered fantastical things, as far as pre-modern works go, they are surprisingly well-grounded in reality. I've sometimes described them as episodes of Law and Order Viking edition. So, when reading them, I've been looking for four things specifically for this podcast. First, how they engage in violence. This would be descriptions of specific martial techniques. Two, why they engage in violence. What are the philosophical reasons behind their relationship with violence? Three, 
what strategic lessons can be learned, and four, any descriptions of martial training, if any. There are some things that are so obvious in a person's culture that we don't think to describe it. For example, walking. You've probably never come up with a specific word to describe Western or European walking. It's just walking. Yet, there was a different method of walking in pre-modern Japan, partially influenced by footwear, body language, and cultural norms. They probably didn't think to describe how they walked, either. Yet here we are with two very different methods of walking. My suspicion is that there are similar disconnects in the sagas as well, where they describe something that they did very differently from us, but because it was normal to them, they never thought to write down what it was in detail. That has then been lost, and we fill in whatever is normal today as what they are doing in place of what they actually did. And then we get some drift in our understanding of the texts. Also, like I said earlier, some of these have fantastical elements. I've read twice of a neon belly technique being used to defeat a troll. Others have some level of strategic wisdom, such as picking where and when to fight and knowing when not to fight. I'm hoping to pick out some gems for martial artists from these between all the family history and legal disputes. We have to remember, though, that their relationship with violence was very different from ours. What was considered right and just also had different norms. A revenge killing that was not immediately announced and taken credit for was considered murder. But if you committed a revenge killing and then went to the closest farm and announced it, apparently that might not be considered murder, though you certainly could get taken to court to pay restitution. So we'll look at how they interacted with these things in the same way that I've approached other warrior cultures. Contextually, it can be challenging to clearly look into what actual pre-modern Scandinavian thought was like. We can get echoes and glimpses, but there are several filters we have to be aware of. The sagas were recorded, as a general rule, by Christians. Some were written by Christians. At the time the sagas were written down, that was the predominant state religion in Iceland, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. Along with the poetic Edda, which includes works like the Voluspa, the Prose Edda, a kind of skaldic textbook, the Havamal, and a few other works, these are the primary sources we have for getting some understanding of the thought and philosophy of this era. I'm not going to pretend that these are 100% accurate views into these cultures and their way of thinking. However, they are all we have, so we're going to work with what we have. If you've listened to prior episodes, you've probably heard me talk about the difference between historical accuracy and mathematical or scientific accuracy, with an example of Caesar crossing the Rubicon. Maybe it really was him, maybe it wasn't. We can never prove it with mathematical or scientific levels of accuracy. There are plausible alternatives. The same applies here, though. I'm going to be making assertions and interpretations based off a limited set of data. I'm sure we can all come up with plausible alternatives, so take this for what it is. One martial artist's take on some old works that may or may not have been filtered through several lenses. To recap, first there are the original composers of the sagas, with all their biases and preconceived notions. They had political and religious 
though pagan, reasons for portraying the things the way they did. Then there were the likely Christian recorders of the sagas who had political and religious reasons for portraying things the way they did. Then there are the translators of the sagas into English, and then there's me. As always, I highly recommend you read these works for yourself. So with the exception of one slip, why haven't I been saying the word Viking? The word Viking, like samurai, knight, or cowboy, has a lot of baggage. The line of delineation between fact and fiction is a challenging one with any of this. The era of the sagas overlaps with what is often called the Viking era in history, though the word we use today for Viking only came into use in English in the 18th, possibly 19th century, um, where the word was used in a variety of ways in the prior centuries. There are uses of the word in the sagas that clearly imply raiding, while others seem to be more a sense of a group traveling overseas for adventure and fortune. So we might say it wasn't so much a name of an occupation as a word used to describe a type of trip. It often included raided, raiding, but sometimes apparently it could just be a trade voyage, possibly both. Not all trips abroad were described as Viking, nor were all the people leaving Iceland referred to as Vikinger. But the word was in use and acquired a definite sense of a trip or a group of people engaging in what we would describe in modern times as piracy as the centuries progressed. One interesting note is that they weren't the only ones raiding during this time, and in fact, they also weren't the most destructive or brutal. Frankish raiders, as one example, were much more destructive to areas of what we know today as southern France when compared to Viking raids of the same period. The fact of the matter is that the word has acquired additional meaning since its use in the sagas. So if I say it at all, it will be in the context of the Icelandic or will be intentionally to emphasize something about the use of the word as the saga was written. Philosophically, the people of the sagas held a value system that differed from many modern ones. The sense of honor and one's reputation was of much greater importance and would motivate people to behave and act in ways that would not necessarily make much sense to us today. Two words I like to familiarize us with is drengskapur and nithr. Just a heads up, I know a little Swedish, but no Icelandic or Old Norse, so I'm not going to do a good job of pronouncing these. I'll do my best, but my apologies if my pronunciation grates on anyone's ears. Drengskapur was a good thing, an admirable trait something to be looked up to and praised. The traits of a drenger, or a person with honor, would include things like bravery, fairness, and doing what is right, a refusal to be petty, a willingness to face danger, and so on, the usual sorts of things humans have looked up to. Nitter was something shameful. A person with this trait was to be despised and avoided. This could include being cowardly, lying, breaking an oath, killing a defenseless person, and so on. Again, the usual sort of things humans have considered wrong. There's also an emphasis on fate and luck. Destiny was a big deal, and one could say that one's fate was sealed at birth by the Norns. That didn't mean the path you took was predetermined, just your destination. So whether you hit at home 
or went out seeking adventure, you didn't really gain or lose anything in the end. It was worth taking risks to make your path a better one through life. Likewise, one's luck, or even a family's luck, their gefa, was something that influenced the decision-making process. Dreams and omens could influence choices. Honor and dishonor were closely linked to words. What one said to others and what was said could actually end up being the legal case for the right to kill someone. Within families, words, possibly even ones that might be considered taunts or insults, would be used to goad people into action. In Vatenstahl's saga, at the very beginning, Ketil says to his son Thorstein that the youth these days have no sense of adventure, just wanting to stay home and not go and seek wealth and honor through exploits. He goes on to insult his son Thorstein's size and strength, saying that his deeds will probably match. After going on for considerably longer, Thorstein replies, If ever provocation worked, this would be provocation enough and so sets off a series of events that results in some interesting deeds and adventures. Similar provocations are used at times to spur action in others. The sense of honor previously mentioned surely played a role in the decision-making process that made such words meaningful to the life philosophy of the listener. The depths and heights of both honor and dishonor could be shown through poetry, gifts, actions, and something unique as far as I know, to the sagas was the nithstong, or scorn pole. <clears throat> Ruins could be carved on these invoking curses, horse heads placed on them, and so on, though the rules or boundaries by which one would know and recognize the scorn pole are unclear to me as of yet. They were a big deal, and would certainly have an impact on those two things I mentioned earlier that were important to the philosophy of this era, one's honor and reputation. This could be so motivating as to drive a person to violence. I mentioned earlier that their standards could be quite different from ours. One example would be a vengeance killing. To protect, one, to protect one's honor, a killing may be necessary. And it wasn't always necessary against the person who committed the offense to one's honor. In Hrafenkel's saga, Hrafenkel saw the brother of the man who was seeking, he was seeking vengeance against and killed that innocent by our standards, instead to avenge himself. Thus, duels were a thing. Two types included the Einvigi, or less formal single combat, and the more formal Holmganga, which literally meant going to the island. Fighting a duel on an island cut down on the possibility of interference from others and from running away. A time and a place was set for the duel, and if anyone did not show up, they were considered a nithinger, a person of dishonor. I've read in some of the sagas that not showing up also meant the other party would raise a scorn pole to curse you. There were various rules about standing on cloaks, being able to buy out of the duel at first blood, how many shields were allowed, because apparently they broke often enough, sacrifices would be made at times before the duel, while some duels stipulated that if you became weaponless, you were considered defeated, Yet in Egil's saga, Egil defeats Atli by wrestling with him and biting his throat out. Kind of moral combat-esque, but, or I should say mortal combat-esque, but okay. One might consider it rather like the nitpicking over rules in MMA matches today. Pride is a little different from the UFC, and so on. Some duels ended quickly. 
Others took so long that the participants had to stop and rest before continuing. It's possible to look at some of these cases and ask the question if the person was exploiting the so-called rules to their advantage or if they really were tired. Hard to say. There were also group duels, four-on-fours. There was one that was described as two sealed in a tub or cask and then fighting with short staves. I guess the point is there, there was a lot of variance in this, which brings to one other common trait. There was often a verbal recitation of the dual law or agreement prior to the duel. So while duels varied, people made sure they understood the conditions beforehand. One source I would recommend listening to if you would like to dig much more deeply into the sagas is the podcast Saga Thing. They've been around for years and do an incredible job of breaking down the sagas, giving context, and generally making them understandable. As I do my own readings of the saga, I'll be sure to listen to John and Andy's take on each. Hopefully, I'll also be able to avoid any major glaring mistakes by listening to their take on each saga I work with. Another source is the Hurstwick Society, which has been fervent in their love of researching what can be learned from the sagas and archaeology about the combative traits of this era. As with one's own training, I'll surely make mistakes along the way. These are just my training notes, after all. But hopefully together we can piece together some interesting insights, learning something along the way, and improve our own training. As always, don't just talk about philosophy, but like your martial art, live it. That's all for today. Please help the podcast out by sharing and telling people about it. The best way you can help us is just by letting people know that it's out there and what it's got you thinking about. Thank you for listening and talk to you again soon.